Open up your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And uh, we've had a good day. It's uh, been really different, hasn't it, with having, having two worship services. But hopefully you're not like, it depends probably on which seat you're in, but you know, we're, you're not hopefully like this today. We moved at least 80 people to the early worship service. And uh, so hopefully we'll have some room for you to invite your friends. This side is already over 80% full. Way. You guys are tight. We're listing a little bit, okay? That's cool. That's okay. Over here, probably pretty close to 80% full. Isn't that crazy? It's just, it's just amazing. And uh, we're working on parking and stuff. And have you seen the new uh, facility that we're building about a mile away from here? It's really coming out of the ground. It really is looking good. And um, it is going to be a blessing to us, hopefully about eight months from now. Well, we're starting a series on worship. And I heard a story recently while you're turning to Psalm 139. Francis Chan is a pastor. Uh, and uh, the Lord is using him in a tremendous way. One Sunday after a worship service, a person walked up to him and they said very honestly to him, Pastor, I didn't particularly like the worship service today. To which Francis Chan said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you anyway. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that if you think about it. Let's be honest. Be real open. We all struggle with this, don't we? But most of the time, if we were to evaluate a worship service, we would admit, you know, somebody says, how'd you like the worship service? How is your worship service? We would start with what we liked about it or what made us comfortable and probably go to what we didn't like, whether it's the song selection or the preaching style, the length of the service or the instruments used. And we would start evaluating that service upon what we like upon what we enjoy. But if we stop and think about it, worship is not about us. And it's not the best place to start if we were going to evaluate a worship service. Worship does involve us, though, doesn't it? It really does. And I've been studying for a few weeks now. I've been reading several books on worship. I spent probably two weeks just trying to define what is worship. You can worship God in so many different ways. And so if you were just to ask the question, what is worship? It gets more difficult, I think, the more you study. But worship involves us. But it doesn't start with us. Worship starts with God because worship is about Him. It's for Him. We worship Him when we gather. Worship is not about what we enjoy. Worship is about what God enjoys and about what God desires. But there is a truth that really helped me in the struggle because even though worship begins with God and, and it's about what God desires, there is still this sense in which worship helps me. Worship encourages me. Worship, it strengthens me and it does bring me joy. And yet I know it's all about me trying to focus my attention on him and, and him watching us worship and receiving him receiving glory and honor and blessing. But I noticed this. If I want to be blessed, and we all would say if we were open and honest, we want to be blessed when we come to a worship service, right? I mean, I don't want to go to an, a worship service and leave feeling down. But it's this, the truth that helped me. 
When you focus on the Lord in worship, instead of the songs, instead of the preacher, instead of all the other things and people around you, whatever you would name it, if you will work, focus on the Lord and give God what He desires, your praise, give God what He deserves. Listen, what you do in that beautiful process is when you focus on Him and not on the stuff around you, then you really do wind up receiving what you need. But here is the key, and listen to me, this is the key. Your needs will be met. You will be encouraged. You will be strengthened. But you know what you'll be strengthened by? By Him. Not by a song, or not by a sermon, or not by... You will be strengthened when you focus on Him. Just being in our Heavenly Father's presence. Just giving Him glory and getting closer to Him and meditating on Him. We will get fed by Him. Those needs are met that we have, whatever they are, by focusing on His sufficiency, on who He is. I think this is what the psalmist meant in Psalm 37, verse 4, when it, the psalmist said this, and we're not looking at it today, but the psalmist said this, Delight thyself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, notice what it says. Delight yourself in whom? In the Lord. Meditate in Him. Find your delight in Him. And so to worship for me really takes study and knowledge about Him. How am I going to learn about Him? How am I going to delight in Him? I have to know who He is. I have to know what He does. And as I delight myself in Him, not in the singer, it's okay to have a great singer, not in the song, it's okay to have a great song, but all of those songs and devices and people and preachers should always constantly lift me and my gaze toward heaven, toward Him, because when I delight myself in the Lord, the desires of my heart are fulfilled. When you and I give God what He wants, which is all of you, you will receive what you need, all of Him. And I think today many people are not even realizing it, but going to church, wanting to be encouraged by songs or wanting to be encouraged by people, wanting to be encouraged by a message rather than by meeting with God. A.W. Tozer, who was a giant of a man of God, said this, and I quote, now listen to it, it it's, it, boy, it's to the, it cuts to the chase. The church that can't worship must be entertained. And people who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. Do you get it? The church that can't worship must be entertained. And people who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. Hmm. Often, 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 we evaluate a worship service based on the performance of people. We rate a service kind of the same way we want to rate a movie. Thumbs up, thumbs down. On the performance of others, how they affected us, people affected us, spoke to us, or moved us. Listen, that's called entertainment. A lot of people choose where they attend church and invest their life in a church based on which church can entertain them best. They would never call it that. None of us would. And listen to me now. I love excellence. You know me. I love, man, I love, and there's something to be said. If you're singing or praying or preaching for the Lord to do it with excellence. But I'm telling you, if it doesn't lead us into the 
a higher knowledge of Him, if it doesn't lead us into knowing more about Him and into enjoying Him, learning more about Him, it's entertainment. Over the years, that has made some churches entertainment centers rather than places of true worship. In Psalm 139, King David in the Old Testament tells us the truth about who God is. Here's why he does that, I think, part of it. I think he was overwhelmed by God's presence and knowing him and God's person. But I think he does it because if we'll never know how to worship if we don't know who we worship. David was one of the greatest worship leaders ever. And he delivers an amazing truth, a lot of amazing truths about God. Let's look at Psalm 139 together. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to read along with me just silently as I read it. David is, is crying out. He's had an amazing picture of God and a revelation of God. And he says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on or hide me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day to you. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Now David should be very glad God didn't answer that prayer. Because David was, was a great repenter, but David was a great sinner. David was a murderer many times over. Many times over. David was a bloody man. David was an adulterer. I mean, I'm not criticizing him. I'm just telling you what he is. But here he is, like you and I, sinners, and saying, Lord, would you kill those wicked people? <laughs> David's kind of going to his own 
He's trying to prove to the Lord here by his own words and a sense and his deeds that he loves the Lord. Hold that you would slay the wicked, O God, in verse 19. Depart from me then, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak wildly against you, Lord, wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred, and I count them my enemies. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. And know my anxieties. And see, Lord, if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What a prayer. David talking about this in Psalm 139 really talks about two things. He talks about the incredible power of the Lord and he talks about the personal impact that that should have on our worship. And so let's start with the incredible power of our Lord. If our understanding of, of our God is poor, our worship will be poor too. This is why wording in songs is so critically important. Because we gain a lot of theology through songs. And that theology or knowledge of God has to be correct. If our understanding of God is poor, our worship will be poor. The only way our worship improves is that our knowledge of and love for and adoration of God gets greater. David gives some amazing information about God. And he celebrates some attributes of God. Theologians call them, the big term, but incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, God never gives these away. God never passes these on. These are his attributes. They belong to him and him alone. They aren't transferred. First of all, David says that God is omniscient. In other words, God knows everything. Omniscience. He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Do you know that God knows everything about everything and everyone, everywhere, all the time? In the first couple of verses of Psalm 139, David starts out and David shows how God's omniscience now, how it affects him personally. Notice the personal pronouns. Lord, I'll read it a little different. You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You perceive my thoughts afar off. Now, you see, it's not just that God knows everything generally in the world. David is overwhelmed in worship, knowing that God specifically knew everything about him. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing that he can hide if he wanted to. Yet, God knowing everything, David says, you still love me. David says that God's omniscience means several things. He means... First of all, it means he knows what I am. I may not know what you are, and you may not know what I am, but I'll tell you this, God knows who we are. And God knows who we really are. Notice what he says in verse 1, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. That word for searched, it's a word, you know what it means originally? It means to see through. David is saying, God, you see me like I'm made out of glass. He sees through me, and he sees it all. Do you know that God knows you better than you know yourself? 
God knows your weaknesses. God knows your struggles. God knows your strengths. He knows your pros. He knows your con. Listen, God sees through you. And God sees through me. We look, we look pretty good to one another, but God sees through us. But not only that, God not only knows who we are, God knows what we think. Verse 2, David says, you know my sitting down and you know my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. I did a little study on that because I didn't quite get it at first. What he's not saying is, he's not saying, God, you're way out there and you can read my mind from a distance. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying God is far off. What he is saying is this, is Lord, you know my thoughts far ahead of me knowing my thoughts. Lord, you know my thoughts before I would think the thoughts that I would think. God knows what I'm planning. God knows what I'm scheming. God knows what I'm dreaming. God knows my scheduling and God knows my organizing. God knows the, the, the problems. And God knows the motives and the intents behind our thoughts as well. He knows our future thoughts just as extensively as he knows our past thoughts. It's amazing, isn't it? You know me, you know who I am, you know me, you know what I think, you know me. David says in verse 3, you know, you know where I go. Look at it, verse 3, he, he says, you comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Again, what David is doing is using two extremes, two opposites, to communicate the extensiveness of God's knowledge of us. He is, uh, whether I, you know, my paths, whether I'm walking or you know whether I'm lying down, doing nothing, Lord. You know it all, and you're acquainted with all my ways. On my bed, you know what I'm thinking. On my feet, you know what I'm thinking. Traveling or asleep, God never takes his eyes off of you. You are never outside of the scope of God's sight. And lastly, David says God's omniscience means that he knows also what I say. Uh, verse 4 just blows me away. <laughs> Scares me to death sometimes. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. See, God, God knows what you are before you're born. He knows what you'll think before you think it. And He knows what you're going to say before you ever say it. God's omniscience. I mean, you know what it means? Now, how does that, so practically for me, what does that mean? If God knows all that, here's what it means. Look at me. It means you can come to worship and you should come to worship and just be real. Just don't be pretentious in worship. If I come in here and I'm struggling and I just, you know, got up and kicked the dog and yelled at the wife and then I come in here and put on my pastoral clothes and try to be holier than thou doesn't fool God we look good to one another and it's cool and I'm glad you're at church man I thank God for it but listen God knows who you are God knows who I am so when you come in here don't try to leave the unholy outside and the bring only the holy in because listen we're just a mixture of both and so we just need to come in and be honest and say God I am struggling I am sick and tired of being treated like this or I'm struggling like this but Lord I'm going to focus on you God you know it all you know my heart God and you know you know why do we think we can't bring our problems in with us this is this is why people don't come to church today 
you know, come to church, man, hang out. Come to church with us sometimes. Eh, I got too much going on. I don't want to, you know, ain't got anything in touch with those self-righteous church people. (laughs) What a joke, man, what a joke. As I've said a thousand times, if you knew my thought life, you wouldn't listen to me preach. But if I knew yours, (laughs) I wouldn't speak to you. (laughs) I mean, really, listen, let's face it. We struggle. Daggum. We get frustrated. We just, but God knows this. So I don't have to pretend with him. I don't have to beautify or perfect my thoughts or emotions before I can come to him. And uh, he already knows and understands why I'm upset or insecure or disappointed or brokenhearted or confused or, or deceived. He can handle my doubts. He can handle my fears. Because, listen, He knows me completely inside and out. Because He does, then He can love me exactly, precisely. And He can lead me the way I need to go, even with all my imperfections. He knows all about you. You can't play fake with Him. But David also says God is not only omniscient, David says he's omnipresent. In other words, he's everywhere. (laughs) David's kind of saying, you know, I've noticed something, though. No matter where I go, God is there. You know, every now and then I can just picture David getting out of the castle and getting away from Israel where people knew him. And he just probably wanted to go hang out with the boys and party a little bit. Knowing David's attitude, I can only imagine it. I can only imagine that sometimes he wanted to get away from all the role of the king and all the pressures of being the king. And and yet, I think that's why you find in verse 7, David is actually asking a question that a lot of us ask if we were honest. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know what that word presence means in the Old Testament? It's the exact same word. It's a Hebrew word for face. It's a Hebrew word for face. You see, when someone is facing you, they see you. They watch you. They're aware of you. How many times if you have kids, you say, you know what, you kids, I can't believe you. I turned my back on you for five seconds and look what you do, right? Think about it. I turn my back. for no, God, David says, God, you're always facing me. Like, like, God, you're always facing me. And this is not in a bad way. This is in a good way. Why? Because God loves him. God knows everything about him. And he loves him. And because God watches his children, God is not. He watches after his children to care for his children and love his children. He's not some absentee dad. He's got his face towards his child. David's saying, Lord, where can I hide from your face? Everywhere I go, you're facing me, you're present, you're watching, you're aware. Now, depending on where you stand in your relationship to Christ and the gospel, that can either be the most thrilling thing you've ever heard to know that God is watching you and watching after you all the time, or it could be the most terrifying thing that you could ever know, that God is watching you all the time. Whichever it is, I promise you this, God is inescapable. He can be ignored for a little while, but he cannot be avoided forever. Jeremiah 23, 24 says this, Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is everywhere. God is inescapable. That means you can't escape God through death. 
I mean, look at verse 8. What does David say in verse 8? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, behold, you are there. You can't escape God through death. I'll tell you what else you can't do. You can't escape God through distance. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and I, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You can't go a distance and get away from God. You can't, you can't escape God by darkness. I love verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on or hide me. Sure, this is when thieves do their work, right? They come out at dark and steal. David says, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night is light about me. David says, the day and the night, the darkest night, God, is just like brightest daylight to you. I don't want to be crass, but God works the night shift. Amen? Hey, listen, look at me. Aren't you glad he does? If he didn't, it'd be chaos. No matter how dark life seems to you, no matter how dark it gets, no matter whether it's cancer or a, a child, the death of a child or the death of a parent, the loss of uh, your finances, no matter how dark, no matter how dark, it's never dark to Him. And God loves you and God is watching you when you think it's so dark, maybe God can't even find me or see me. Listen, God is never stumbling around in the dark, fumbling around in the dark, looking for the light switch. His eyes are always on you. I read this week a true story about a man named Ken Gobb. He was an evangelist, a preacher, traveled all over the world preaching, and his ministry blossomed. He had a magazine, he had radio ministry, television ministry, all this stuff. He was facing burnout, and he began to question his ministry and his effectiveness and his calling. And one day in the midst of tremendous doubting in a dark time, he and his family were in their bus, and he pulled it off uh, of I-75 south of Dayton, Ohio for a meal. And he saw a sign that directed him, saw it said Pizza Hut this way. And so that's, he turned and he thought to himself, and Ken Gobb said, you know, Lord, that's what I need from you. I need a sign. They hopped out of the bus and went into the restaurant to get seated, but Ken decided not to eat. He uh, wanted to know if God wanted him to continue on his ministry. So while his family was eating, he just started walking, and he went out and he walked down the sidewalk, and as he was walking down the sidewalk, he said he passed a payphone. And as he did, the payphone started to ring. He said, I looked around and... Nobody was there to answer, so I just walked over and I picked it up and I said, hello. And the voice of an operator said, I promise you, true story, I have a long distance call, sir, for a Ken Gob. Now Ken was stunned and, and he just kind of stammered and he said, this is crazy, it can't be. I was just walking down the road, ma'am, and this phone was ringing. She didn't even act like she heard him, and she said, Is Ken Gobb there? There's a long-distance call for Ken Gobb. This has been years ago because obviously there was a payphone, right? Something you can't find today. But Ken thought for sure he was being set up. He said there was somebody with some TV show or something. But then he realized, he, he said, I realized I knew that couldn't be the case because, like, nobody knew where we are, and I had just decided to pull off at that exit. Nobody in the family suggested it. He said, I had all this going through my mind, and the operator started losing her patience, and she said one more time, I have a long-distance call for Mr. Ken Gobb, sir. Is he there or is he not there? Ken said, operator, I'm Ken Gobb. 
And she said, are you sure? <laughs> now she's testing him. And then he said, I heard another voice chime in. It was the voice of the caller. It was a woman. And she said, that's him, operator. She said, I recognize his voice. Mr. Gobb, I'm Millie from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You don't know me, but I'm desperate. Please help me. So I said to her, he said, what can I do for you, Millie? And she began to weep, and she explained that earlier in the day, she was about to take her own life. But as she attempted to write a suicide note out, she began to pray. And as she prayed, she knew that suicide wasn't what God wanted her to do. She remembered seeing Ken on TV and felt if she could just talk to him, maybe she could get the help she needed. And she said, Mr. Gobb, I knew it was impossible because I didn't know how to reach you. So I continued to finish my suicide note. And then as I was writing, some numbers came into my mind. And I just wrote them down. And I looked at those numbers and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I had a miracle from God and he has given me Ken Gobb's phone number? I can't believe I'm talking to you. She said, are you in your office in California? He said, ma'am, I don't have an office in California. It's in Washington. And she said, then where are you? And Ken told her what had happened. And then he lovingly shared the gospel with her. And she surrendered her life to Jesus Christ and was saved. After they hung up, Ken realized that God had given him a sign. He went back into the restaurant, running in literally, and said to his wife, Barbara, Barbara, you won't believe this, but God knows where I am. <laughs> now, I got news for you. I don't know where you're at. You come here with a good smile on your face. You may come here looking sad. I don't know where you're at, but God knows where you are. And that's exactly what David is telling us in Psalm 139. God is omniscient. He knows all. God is all, all, uh, uh, omnipresent. He is everywhere. And he knows exactly where you are physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And then as I, and then as I close, David says God is also omnipotent. Do you know what that means? God has all power. The one who knows where you are and who knows you has all power. The Bible affirms the limitless power of God over and over. There's nothing God cannot do except something that would contradict his nature or violate his word. His, for instance, God can't lie. But anything else... As long as it doesn't contradict his nature, as long as it doesn't contradict his word, God is all-powerful. He cannot be stopped by anything or anyone. You know what David does fascinates me. He's going to illustrate how powerful God is. He doesn't talk about the stars and the galaxies, limitless, and the universe. David simply points to the miracle of himself. In verses 14 to 16, listen, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, 
My skillfully wrought, and I was skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. What? The days fashioned for me, yet as when there were none of them. You know what David's saying? David said, I'm, I'm not an accident. I'm not here because of Mother Nature. I'm not here because of fate. I'm not here because of evolutionary chance, survival of the fittest. God, you knew me, and God, you designed me, and God, you put me together in my mother's womb. My daughter Amy was married last weekend, and uh, I was honored to do that ceremony, and when they came forward, I spoke about how God had designed Amy, especially for her groom, Je uh, Jeffrey. You'll forgive me, I've had two weddings in two weeks. <laughs> it's easy to get them mixed up. But I'll tell you this. I stood before Jeffrey, and I said, I believe with all my heart, you are the guy, you're the man that God has designed specially for our daughter. You know why I said that? First of all, because I believe it's true. Secondly, he's adopted. Never has met his real dad, doesn't really know who his real dad is. And he always struggles with that. There's some sense of, I just don't know who I am, or I just don't know, you know, it just don't, like I'm unplanned. Well, I want to tell him something. I wanted him to know it. And I said it, you are who you are, exactly as God wants you to be for this day. We don't find our purpose in our parents. We find our purpose in our Lord. In His creative design. You're not an accident. People have accidents. God has none. People make mistakes. God makes none. And who you are, listen to me, if you want to see the incredible, limitless, mind-boggling, breathtaking power of God, just look in the closest mirror. You are made by God. And He made you and he loves you. There's a song out, been out for a while now. Theologians fuss about it. I, I hate to get caught up in stuff like this, but I think it's, I think they're actually right. It's a popular Christian song. It's called Reckless Love. The authors, the writers, songwriters' intent was good. But the chorus of that song goes like that, this. This overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety and nine. I couldn't earn it, and I didn't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Now, I want to like that song, and I'm not being a nitpicker, but I just can't. Because most of that song is absolutely true, but not all of it. The driving theme of the song is that God's love is reckless. The definition of reckless is this. Doing something without thinking or caring about the consequence without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. And my friend, listen to me, God is not reckless. You see, if God were all powerful yet reckless, he'd be dangerous. If God was all knowing yet reckless, ooh. 
He would be undependable. If God were, were ever present everywhere, yet reckless, you couldn't trust him to be there when you needed him. And the amazing truth is that God is not reckless with his love, but even though he does know everything about you, everything, every good thought, every bad thing, everything, even though he goes everywhere with you where you go, and even though he could do anything he wants to do to you through his all power and all sufficiency, he chose to intentionally, lavishly, graciously, and unconditionally pour out his great love for you by entering into this world in the flesh in his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to pay for your sins, and show you his great love for all eternity and my friend there is nothing reckless about that it was a very intentional and designed act on the part of God to rescue you and save you now as I close how does that impact our worship when you begin to know this about God wow he knows everything but he still loves me Wow, he's always with me. I never have to be alone. Oh, he's got all powerful. Do you see? This is why David in verses 5 and 6 says, Lord, you have hedged me behind and before. You've, you've got hedges in front of me and hedges behind me. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. David's saying this is blowing me away. It's high. I cannot attain it. David paints a picture of that with the words, You have hedged me behind and before. Those words carry the idea of an army surrounding a city so no one can escape. Now, to those who are not in Christ, that must be a terrifying thing. But to those of us who understand the grace and mercy of God and have experienced it through the salvation of our souls and forgiveness of our sins through Christ, I say this, I'm so glad that I am hemmed in by God. I am so glad being hemmed in completely by God with all of his awareness, all of his power, and all of his understanding, that is a precious reassurance. I wouldn't trust my best five minutes on earth to get me to heaven. Now, I'm dead serious when I say that. And the fact that you are never out of God's sight, you're never out of his presence, you're never out of his ability to help, you're never too far from him to get his attention, nothing is more precious than that. Because listen, every human has a great desire for somebody, someone to completely know us and to completely love us. But our greatest fear is also that if we were to be completely known... They wouldn't love us. So we run, we hide, we pretend, we put on a face, we act, we deceive, so we can present what we think others around us want, so they'll love us. And we try to do the same thing with God, because we think, you know, if God sees me, if God knows everything, he won't love me. And David is telling us in this psalm, God already knows you completely. And God loves you completely anyway. I think this is why David says now, 20, verse 23, he's, he's, he's wanting the Lord to search him. Lord, show me 
and know my heart. He said, Lord, I trust you because you know me and you love me and you want the very best for me. I'd remove anything that is wrong or sinful because I want you more than anything. God knows you. God knows you and God knows me. And he loves us anyway. I got a little granddaughter. She's the best granddaughter on earth. <laughs> besides yours. <laughs> They're precious. She comes in the house now and every week she's learning a new song or they taught her something at Sunday school. And it's so awesome to hear her sing these little songs. And a grandmother was telling one time this story. It wasn't my granddaughter, but it could have been, I tell you. But she said she came running in and she said, Grandma, Grandma. I got to learn a new song at church. They taught us a new song. And Grandma said, well, sing it for me. Sing it for me. The little girl kind of stumbled around and finally sang. And she sang this. Jesus knows me. This I love. Jesus knows me. This I love. He knows every struggle. He knows what I need. He knows what I really need, not just what I want. And Jesus knows you, and he loves you, even though he knows all about you. And that should make us want to worship him with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that... Um, during this invitation time we would just love on you that we would realize that worship is not about us that we would just worship you thank you Lord that you know everything thank you Lord that you're everywhere thank you Lord that you have all power so no matter what we're facing today I pray God that you would just help us to right now take a few moments and say thank you Thank you, Lord, that you know all about me, but you still love me. You still sent Jesus for me. I pray, God, that you would receive our praise during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.